Okay, let's uh, go to God in prayer. Okay, dear fathers, we come before you today. Uh, we pray that your word will speak to us powerfully as it always does. That we will understand what it meant in that day and what it means to us now. And the great lessons of how we should relate to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now everyone knows uh, how important uh, leadership is. All of us follow leaders. Uh, whether we uh, choose to believe it or not, we are all influenced by someone, we all trust someone, we are all shaped by somebody. Now, I remember reading a newspaper just not too long ago about how, you know, the, the, the soccer uh, Euro Championships are on now, and uh, the French team lost. And uh, when they were asked why they lost, they said it was because they didn't have a good leader, a good captain on the field. And uh, someone questioned the coach and said, why didn't you appoint a leader? And the coach said, you can't just find a leader, a good leader comes along. You cannot make someone a leader. And I think that in the world that we live in today, people are very interested in leadership. Uh, especially how to be a leader. You know, you can actually find journals uh, about leadership. There's a leadership journal. There are conferences about leadership. You go to the bookshops, Kinokunia, Borders is closed already, so you can't go there. right? Or maybe you go to your e-books, whatever. And there are all these books about leadership. But it's always about how to be a leader. But there are very few books which tell us how to choose a leader what kind of leader you need to follow, what kind of leader do you need to influence you. But it makes a very big difference, isn't it? The type of leader that you have and the leader that you follow. Now today, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, we come to a time of crisis in, God's, in the life of God's people, in the life of Israel. And fundamentally, it is a problem of leadership. Because as we've seen over the, uh, chapter 1, of uh, 1 Samuel to chapter uh, 7, uh, Samuel was raised up by God to be the leader of his people, of God's people, and he was a very, very good leader. And last week we saw two things that made him a very good leader. The first thing was that he consistently called people back into a relationship with God. So last week we saw how he told people, that uh, God's people, that they needed to give all of their heart to God. They needed to serve God only, and they needed to get rid of their idols. But the second thing he also did was he interceded for God's people. He prayed for God's people. He kept crying out for them and presenting sacrifices as a result. And as we saw last week, because of Samuel's leadership, good things, very good things happened for God's people in Israel, God's, uh, God's place. So last week, uh, 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 we need to understand a bit of the geography, right? I, I keep showing you the map so that by the end of it, you'll be very familiar. Okay, this is a... The promised land, and these are all the different tribes, okay, they're all different colors. So next slide. So last week we saw how because of, uh, of Israel, uh, uh, the, the work of Samuel in Israel, they had won this wonderful battle in Mizpah, and then later on, because of God's uh, influence, they had pushed out the Philistines, their arch enemies, further and further away, into little corners and remote corners of the promised land, so they defeated them in Akron and Gath, and they pushed aside the Ammonites. But today, as we look at the chapter 8, we see that uh, there is a serious leadership crisis. Because after all the good work that Samuel had done, uh, he is getting old. So in verse 1 it says, When Samuel grew old, right, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Bathsheba. Oh, so you still need the map up there for a second, sorry. Uh, right, so... Uh, he served, um, Samuel served up here, okay, he, he went on the circuit between Bethel and, and Gilgal, this area, but his son served in Bathsheba, which is down the south, okay? 
But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the crisis comes because Samuel grew old. Less energy, no longer able to function as well as he did. Maybe his knees were not good, he couldn't walk around so much. So they attempted a solution, which was to appoint his sons, Joel and Abijah. But unfortunately this didn't work out very well. Because they were not like Samuel. They were not like Samuel at all. Like the saying goes, the seed had fallen very far away from the tree. Okay, I don't know whether you heard this saying before. The seed had fallen very far away from the tree. And instead of serving the people faithfully like Samuel did, they abused the people. They used their position for their personal gain. Now for those of us who have been following 1 Samuel, this brings back very painful memories for us because it reminds us of Eli's sons. And Eli's sons, he was the previous judge, the previous priest, and they were scumbag, no hopers, right? They uh, abused the sacrificial system for themselves to get fat. They slept with the women at the temple. And here we see that Samuel's sons are like Eli's sons. They too are scumbag, no hopers. Uh, We don't see them sleeping around, but they take money to pervert justice. So here there's a crisis of leadership. What will Israel do now? They cannot appoint his sons. Where will, they do, where will they move forward to in leadership? What will, what will they do? So they come forward with a, a proposal. And they say to Samuel in verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us and such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Now you can sort of imagine, right? There's Samuel having his afternoon nap or whatever. And the people come, all the elders come, all the leaders come, and they say, look, you know, Samuel, you're getting old. And you can imagine Samuel saying, yes, I'm getting old. That's why I'm having a nap in the afternoon, right? Then he says, look, your sons are walking your ways. And you can imagine Samuel's head hanging in shame because of the behavior of his sons. But then they say to him, we want a king. And this is a great shock to Samuel. Right? You can imagine Samuel's face sort of like, you know, looking up the shock. And uh, it says here that he's very displeased. He's probably got this big frown on his face. Now, how are we to understand this? I mean, the elders probably thought, oh, you know, maybe it was because, uh, you know, we've offended Samuel. You know, we've said bad things about his sons. Uh, we've said bad things about him. Maybe he feels that we are... Uh, we are giving him a slight. We're saying his judge, you know, his judging us is no good. And that's why verse 7 and verse 8 are so important because if we just had verse 6, we could always say, well, Samuel, he took it very personally for selfish reasons. And that's why he was unhappy that they wanted a king. But look at what it says in verse 7 because in verse 7, and the Lord told him, Samuel, listen to all the people that are saying, that all that the people are saying to you, it is not... You, they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now this is so important, isn't it? Because, well actually verse 8 is very important too, I shouldn't end so fast. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now this is very important because if we were just left at verse 6, we would sort of think, well Samuel, maybe Samuel was just taking it very personally, but here we see what God thinks about it. And when we look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, whenever the Bible tells us what God thinks about something, that is very important because God sees 
all the way into people's hearts. And what God sees, His perspective is always right. So what He's saying is, this proposal, this solution for a king, is not rejecting Samuel, but is rejecting God. It's not a vote of no confidence in Samuel, but actually a no confidence vote against God. Now the situation, we need to understand the historical situation, understand what's happening here, okay? So again, if you look at this picture, the same picture, the big picture, right? Up until now, in Israel's history, um, God's people, Israel, were made out of 12 tribes, and basically God had allocated 12 different places for them to live, all on the promised land. So they were basically like a loose confederacy of God's people, the 12 tribes, and they had a common ancestry. All the 12 uh, tribes uh, had a common ancestry from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the 12 sons, and then they all came out of of uh, Egypt together. They had a common history. They all were rescued out of Egypt by God, Yahweh. And they had a common God. They had a covenant with this common God, Yahweh, the Lord God. So their unity, their identity, was built not on structures, political structures, right? Not, not on nationhood as we understand it. They were all God's people living under God, in God's land, in a covenant that God had given them. So there was no machinery of state, right? There was no political structure. They didn't have a capital, right? They didn't like have a Washington or a London or a Canberra or whatever, right? They were just sort of like 12 tribes all united because they are under the same God. And in the past, whenever they had problems, uh, God would raise up a judge, a judge as a leader, not, 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 not as a high court judge, but a judge as a leader who would lead them against the enemies or solve whatever problems they had. So God had raised up Samuel, remember? And then in, in the book of Judges, God had raised up people like Samson, Gideon, Ehud, who were military judges. Uh, God had raised up someone like Deborah, who was a judicial figure. So all the way in the history of Israel, God had basically looked after His people in this way. He had raised up His judges whenever there was a need. But now, the leaders of Israel were asking for a king. Now why would they ask for a king? Well, what was different between a king and the way God had raised up judges? Well, first of all, a king would have a sort of permanent political structure, you see. You see, when you have a king, it's very stable. I mean, it, was, it might not be very just or good, but it was very stable, right? Because, you know, there's King Andrew, and then after me, there's King Joshua, and then after my son, King Joshua, there will be his son, right? So this is very stable political succession, right? So... Because they were really sick of this hand-to-foot, uh, sorry, hand-to-mouth government, right? Whenever there's a problem, God will raise up a leader, right? They, they didn't want that anymore. They wanted permanent uh, uh, political structure. Because, you know, who's going to come after Samuel? We don't know. We don't want to wait on God anymore. But more importantly, as you look at verse 19, right? Verse 19, we're going to keep coming back to verse 19, because verse 19 is very important. When the people refused Samuel, they said, we want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Now, they wanted a king because during this time, whenever there was a problem, a military incursion, warfare battle, what Israel will do, what God will do is He would raise up a militia army where the, all the tribes, you know, Simeon, Judah, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, they would contribute like 10,000 soldiers, okay, you contribute 5,000, you contribute 2,000, and we all get together, we fight, then we all go home, plow fields, you know, 
milk our donk, uh, milk our cows or whatever. You can't milk donkeys, sorry. Milk your cows or whatever, right? So they had a militia army, but then if you have a king, then you can have national service, you see, right? You can have conscription, you can have a professional army, you can have political structure, a capital, you know, uh, you can have a nationhood, all that sort of thing. But the problem was, God was saying that this was not depending on God. This was not trusting in God. Because the lesson from last week was, a king is not what wins them a battle. Political structure is not what wins them a battle. A, a, A professional army is not what wins them a battle. But God is what wins them battles. So last week, after Israel had turned to the foreign gods, the Baals and the Asherahs, for 20 years, when they turned back to God, they truly repented, they served God and Samuel interceded and prayed, how did they beat the Philistines? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, alright, next slide, look at what it says. Uh, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. And that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed, or the word here is defeated, before the Israelites. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns of Ekron and Tugath uh, that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now why had Israel expanded? Who had defended God's people? It was not Samuel. It was not some successful general, it was not the people, it was not the king, it was God, isn't it? And that's why I kept saying, they put up this stone called Ebenezer, because thus far, the Lord has helped us. They didn't put up a stone to say, oh, you know, Winston Churchill helped us, right, or whatever, some famous general, it was God who had given them victory. So by asking for a king, they were actually forsaking God, who had brought them victory in the previous chapter before. So this whole problem with the Israelites is very similar to people to us today, isn't it? It's much easier to trust in a thing or a person than to trust in God, who we might not see. Right? It's easier to trust in something that we can see and, 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 and visualize and touch. But, but God, hard to trust, isn't it? Also, it's very hard, I think, for us as uh, human beings. We have this temptation. Instead of trusting in God's ways, Right, the, the old system of just this confederacy of 12 tribes and God raising up judges once in a while, it's, it's so much easier to trust in man's thinking, right? Because, you know, all the nations around them, they had this king system. That's the way forward. Don't worry about this judge thing. Who knows God, who God is going to raise up next, isn't it? Now, I wonder whether uh, that's a lesson for us today. As we just look at the first part of this story, are we tempted like the Israelites? to trust in a thing or a person instead of God who we cannot see but we know who has acted in history is it easier for us to trust in our own ingenuity in man's ways man's schemes or do we trust in God's ways 
when you really think about it, as you sit here today, what do you put your trust in, in this life? Is it because you went to a good school, you have a good education, you have a good job, you have a good career prospect, you have a good retirement plan? Or do you put your trust in God? I sometimes ask myself the question, do you really, at the, at the very heart at bedrock, do you trust God or do you trust something else, something tangible? It's so much easier, isn't it, to look at your bank account and say, wow, I can trust that. Or do you trust God who's looking after you? Do you trust your ways or the ways of this world or schemes or ingenuity or techniques or do you trust God's ways? Now I think it's very tempting uh, to trust not in God's ways but the world's ways. I remember talking to a Christian uh, who uh, was telling me that it was okay to take uh, office stationery home to use, right? And I said, hey, you know, they're stealing. He said, ah, everybody is doing it, right? That's the favorite answer whenever you say to a Christian why they're doing something. Everybody's doing it, right? Because it seems as if God's ways are really silly, right? Everybody else is taking, uh, you know, staples and staplers and uh, pads or paper or whatever else, and you're not. It seems like, why should I follow God's ways? In the same way, I remember counseling this person about uh, getting a divorce, and he said, oh, look, everybody's getting divorced. Isn't God really worried about my happiness? Isn't that more important? See, it seems so much easier to follow man's ways rather than God's ways. Now, last week, I, uh, I was a bit of a slump, a blue mood, right? Because I had some, someone sent me some bad news uh, via internet. Uh, my lecturer at Theological College, uh, who was also my neighbor at Theological College, was a good friend of mine, actually, this person. Uh, his son, uh, older son, went to a church in Singapore, and I was friends with his son. And I used to coach his son in his soccer team. But we didn't do very well. Okay? But he wrote to the Sydney Morning Herald uh, to say that he supported uh, gay marriage. Right? And, uh, and, and, and I was like, what? This is my lecturer. What happened to him? Right? So I went to look at his blog. I went to look at his... He published a book or something. And I heard that he's not a pastor anymore. First of all, he's not a lecturer anymore at a theological college. He's not even a pastor. He's a, some secular work. So I was reading, why did he write to the newspapers to say this, right? And apparently when you look at his blog, it's very interesting because you know, when you read people, people's blogs, they, they tell you their whole life, right? And he was saying that one of his friend's sons uh, had decided to become a homosexual. And when he was a pastor, he met more and more homosexual people every day. And uh, he thought that, you know, uh, he was reading some journals and maybe there was some truth that people were influenced by their genes, so, he said, uh, as in uh, genetic genes, not your know, pants, right? And uh, he was saying, look, you know, to be loving, he really wanted to love his friend's son, who he knew growing up, and, you know, he really wanted to love his parishioners, some of them who are struggling with this issue. So, he felt that to love them, then he needed to read the Bible differently. So, by doing so, he felt that, well, now it's okay, you know, it's alright for people to be gay and he supports gay marriage in Australia. And as I was preparing this passage, I thought, isn't that exactly what Samuel chapter 8 is talking about? Because it sounds so logical, so reasonable, so sensible. You know, it's very noble sentiment, isn't it? 
To love people is a really, really noble sentiment. I want to love people. How can you fault me about that? I want to love people. Right? And here he's basically saying to love people means to say to people, you are okay as you are. But the problem is, it goes directly against what the Bible says. That he, at the end of the day, my friend, the, the, my lecturer, has gone against God. He's followed man's ways, which seem so logical and reasonable, but he's turned away from God's ways. And if he can do that, I'm sure we are all capable of doing that too in our own way. In our own lives, many times, we think, okay, maybe the way of the world, maybe my own thinking, that's the right way, but God's way, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just modify it a bit. It's like the famous last words, right? I know what I'm doing. Trust me. But, as you look at this passage, if you turn against God, and you turn against God's ways, then it's the wrong way. Now, if you look, come back to the passage with me, God tells Samuel, in verse 9, Now listen to them, and warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Now in verse 10, all the way down to verse 18, he tells them everything that this king will do. I'm not going to bother reading through it because we read through it already, but I want you to just look at this passage and I want you to keep uh, looking at it and saying, what is the word that keeps being repeated here? Okay, what is the word that keeps being repeated here? Okay, I should have a prize. Okay, there's, there's a word that keeps being repeated here that the king will do. Can you see from verse 10 to verse 18, what is the word that keeps being repeated? It is the word take. Take, 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 take. Okay, it's there in the passage. In the original language, it's repeated four times, right? The king will take. He will take your sons. He will conscript them for the army. He will take them to farm the fields. He will take them to look after the equipment, right? He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will take your produce, crops, livestock and fields. See, in those days, uh, there was no tax for the people of Israel. But this king would come and he would impose a tax. He would take their produce you take their daughters, you take their sons. See, this king will be a taker. He will not be a server or giver. See, nowadays you think about it, uh, people who work in the government, what are they call Civil servants, right? Okay? Public servants. So, you know, you see the police cars in America, you know, when you watch the movies, they always have that sign, uh, to serve and protect, or protect and serve or something, right? To serve and protect. Because the whole idea is, uh, their, their role is to serve. But he says here that the king will not serve, he will take. That's what this king is going to be like. And as we look at this passage, we see a bit more of why it is that by choosing this king, they were actually turning and rejecting against God. It was the type of king that they were looking at. See, what type of king were they looking for? Well, it was very different from the king that God had said that they could have. Now, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, okay, uh, okay, go back a bit. Make the, the, the map picture. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 was written uh, when uh, Moses was here on this side of the uh, promised land. And it's basically like the final words of Moses to the people before they go into the promised land. Okay, so God is speaking through Moses to the people 
before they come in and they take the promised land. Okay, so uh, can we go back now to Deuteronomy 17? So this is the king that God said that they could have, if they wanted to have a king, okay, at some stage in their national life. He said, when you enter the land of the Lord, sorry, the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you, will, and you say, let us have it, set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord God, Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself and make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of gold. Okay? Oh. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers or turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Okay, now the first thing is, maybe you can go back to the previous one. See, the first thing is, uh, this king that God would allow would not have lots of horses. Now, it's not as if the king liked playing polo, right? So he got lots of horses, no. If you see, if you come back with me to uh, chapter 8, right? In verse 10, um, he will take your sons to make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. See, horses here basically are for army purposes. They are like cavalry, or they pull the chariots. So, this king is not to have lots of horses, not for polo, but for an army. So, basically, God said that this king wouldn't be a king which conscripted lots of people and had a huge army. Neither would he. Uh, take many women for his wives. And, and usually in those days, the women, when they married, it was a sort of a political alliance sort of thing. So you, know, you marry different women outside of Israel to secure political alliances. So this king was not to be like that. He was not to have uh, a harem for political tool. He wasn't allowed to accumulate large amounts of gold. Okay, so again, the idea of taxes, he's not meant to have lots and lots of wealth. Okay, and the thing is, the last part... Um, is that he is to keep the law and read it all the time. That means that this king doesn't have new laws, but he actually lives under the law of God and he governs with the law God has given him. Now this is very, very different from the king, obviously, that God's people were asking for. Because the king that God's people were asking for was, what does it say there? A king like all the other nations. A king which would have big armies, lots and lots of horses. Kings which would secure political alliances. A king who will become very rich and powerful and take and take and take. Now, why was it so wrong as we read this passage? See, they wanted to be like the other nations. Basically what they were saying was they wanted to be successful like the other nations. They wanted to have a king like the other nations because they saw that maybe God's ways were holding them back. And that they followed the ways of the nations around them, they'll become more successful. They'll be like Egypt, the superpower of that time. So instead of following God's ways, they said, let's follow 
the ways of the people around us. You can almost hear them talking, isn't it? Come on, guys, we need a king. You know why? Because we need to be with the times. We're not living in the Stone Age anymore. No, this is the Iron Age. We've got to keep up. Right? If not, we're going to fall behind with all the people behind us. Right? The grass is greener on the other side. And that's why the ways of the nations around them look so attractive to the Israelites and they were willing to turn away from God and God's ways. Now I wonder whether for ourselves uh, we are tempted that way. I know I am. Uh, you know, you have a look at your non-Christian friends and they're more successful than you in different things. And you sometimes are tempted and think maybe the way they are doing things is smarter and better than the way I'm doing things. But I'm doing things God's ways but I'm not getting as successful as I should be. Ever think that at the back of your mind? Maybe you never say it, right? But maybe it's there, isn't it? At the back of your mind. Maybe your non-Christian friends are richer. They seem happier. They have an easier life. Fewer worries. They don't have to worry about sin. Don't worry about doing right. They don't have to come to church on Sundays. They don't have to go to Bible study. Right? They don't have to spend their time praying. Don't have to uh, worry about loving others, forgiving. They have, don't have to deal with uh, all these other issues, right? They can just focus on things they really enjoy and on their careers. I remember um, my mother, after I became a Christian, she said to me, oh, you know, Andrew, what happened to you? I used to be so carefree all the time. You know, now you're so serious, right? And uh, this has got worse after I became a pastor, I think. See, you're so serious, she said, right? Then I reflected on it and I think, well, you know, yeah, maybe as a Christian, I was more serious because I was more serious about sin right, and godliness. And, and I was more serious about people's salvation, my relative's salvation. I was more serious because, you know, when you read about the state of the world, it gets you down more. But then when you look at the way of the world, people are so carefree. Right? People are so, you know, they go on holidays all the time. That's the problem on Facebook, right? That's not on Facebook. Anyway. I see my non-Christian friends, well, they're going on holiday, they're eating this, they're buying that. Right? They must be doing something right. What am I doing wrong? Right? It's the same thing. Right? I remember talking to this person and they're saying, you know, I'm not getting ahead in my work. All my colleagues, you know, they are, they're doing this. You know, they're cutting this corner. They're promising things they cannot deliver. But they, they promise anyway and they get this sale, this deal. You know, oh, my, 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 my colleagues, you know, they're doing this thing and, uh, you know, they take credit for my work. Then after a while you think, well, maybe God's ways are not the best. Maybe I should follow the world's ways because that's the way I'll get ahead. Now, that's exactly the way that the Israelites thought. Because they looked at the people around and thought, maybe that's the way to get ahead. Now, I remember even for us as a a church, right? Uh, I remember uh, I went to a talk once uh, at a camp and this uh, church growth consultant was talking to us about how we need to be more successful as a church. And uh, by successful, he was he meant by the world standard of success. Lah. And what's the world standard of success? Numbers and money. Right? Numbers and money. So, you know, so look at McDonald's. Look at Starbucks. Right? I mean, those are the sort of models you can follow from the world if you really want to grow your church in terms of numbers and success, isn't it, in terms of money, uh, 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 
finances. So he's saying, you know, okay, what you need to do right, is you need to look at your demographics and look at uh, around you and, you know, what is the strength of your church? Is it you want to be intimate? You know, or do you want to deliver the church experience? Uh, you know, you need to tailor your, your church service so maybe, you know, the, the sermon needs to be shorter, lots of singing and dancing, all sorts of things. Because, you know, today, people's attention, especially young people, pe- people, young people's attention span is not more than five minutes, you know? That's the longest... You know, a YouTube video is only five minutes, right? So how can you expect them to listen to a sermon for so long? Right? So you know, you need to tailor it so that you know you can, you can really capture the, your market share. But is that really success in terms of God's eyes? My lecturer, John Woodhouse, uh, says, you can grow a church that way, but does it grow people in terms of their godliness, or their prayerfulness, or their love for one another, or their knowledge of God, or their faithfulness? It doesn't, isn't it? So I remember the prosperity gospel. Uh, they were saying, you know, the measure of a successful church is money. Right? Nobody wants to go to a poor church. That's what one prosperity pastor said. You know, no one wants to go to a poor church. But if you turn to the Bible, there is no verse that I can find in the Bible which says that a successful church is a rich church. It says that a successful church is a loving church. Right? Jesus says that to love one another is a mark of the church. Uh, in the book of Revelation, a successful church is a faithful church, a godly church. So I remember reading uh, this book uh, a long time ago called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Right? Because it was saying that, uh, especially in America, so many people uh, want to use uh, the ways of the world instead of the ways of God to grow that church. Uh, one of my lecturers again told me about how uh, when he was a sort of a a bishop or something, overseeing churches, there'll be pastors who come to and say, oh, you know, my church is not growing financially by numbers. And he would say, look, I visited you last year. I see the people, they are growing. They're growing in faith. They're growing in terms of love for one another. They're evangelizing more. That's growth in terms of God's eyes. So I think that in this passage, it shows us that we mustn't always think in terms of the world's way of looking at things. But look at things from God's way of looking at things. Are we, are, are we always trying to think, okay, let's follow the ways of the world because that's success. Or are we thinking, let's follow the ways of God because that's success in God's eyes. So anyway, as we come to verse 19, what did the people do? Did they listen to Samuel? Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his town. So here, God gives a warning, very clear warning to his people, but the people refuse to listen to God. And uh, God's people, as we've seen in 1 Samuel, are not good at listening to God, isn't it? They, they much rather listen to this world. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, Remember when they were first defeated by the Philistines, 4,000 people died? Uh, they said, why did God bring this defeat on us? But they never really asked God for the answer. They just said, let's get the ark, guys. I think that's the worldly answer. Right? That's the man's answer. Here, in chapter 8, uh, you notice uh, in verse 4, they never go to God in prayer or re- reflect on why they need a king. It's only Samuel who prays, isn't it? In verse 6. So God's people are not very good at listening to God, nor following God. You see, 
you can have information, right? But if you do not have the will to follow the information, the desire to follow the information, it's useless. So it's, it's very funny in a way because um, whenever you read about bad things that happen in, in the news, people always write into the newspapers, we need another campaign, right? So that people will need to know that what they're doing is wrong. So you know, when the guy, the speeding thing, you know, he went through the red light and he crashed his Ferrari, you know, like, we need another campaign to tell people that speeding is wrong. Uh, beating the red light is wrong. Do you, do you really need to, to know that beating the red light and speeding is wrong? Uh, you know, too much drink driving. Okay, we need more campaigns. Tell people it's wrong to drink and drive. Do you really need to know that drink driving is wrong? Or unsafe sex practice, right? Do, do people really need to know that uh, having sex uh, with multiple partners in, uh, with prostitutes is unsafe? I don't think so, right? Because, you know, I, I always see um, when you go to the supermarket or NTC, you always look at all those um, cigarette packs they're always staring you in the face, you know, when, you're, when you go to the cash counter, all those people with big holes in their necks and no, no arms, everything, right? And uh, I still see people in front of me saying, hey, can I have a pack of Marlboro, Marlboro Bank tanks? They have all the information there, right? Staring them on the face that this might happen to you if you smoke, right? Smoking kills. They have all the information. But why don't they listen? Because there's no desire to want to listen to the information, to act on the information. And it's the same thing for God's people here. And it's the same thing that happened to us. We read God's word, we hear God's warning, we know what's going to happen, but we don't want to listen. We, we, we feel that our way is better than God's way. Now in the end, in conclusion, as we look at this passage, it's kind of a exposes not just the life of Israel, but our lives, I think. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis uh, tells us an interesting story about how there was this Russian Orthodox priest who as a young man was in Paris with his uh, fiancée for his honeymoon or trip. And uh, they were on a subway train together and this very old, ugly woman got on the train. And uh, because they thought they were in France, they started speaking to each other in Russian. And they were talking about this woman. Hey, you know this woman? Yeah, she's really old, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look at all the lines and the... Right? Anyway, a few stations later, this old woman uh, got up and walked past them and she, she was walking out. She turned to them and said to them in perfect Russian, I wasn't always ugly. And they felt totally exposed because they thought that uh, actually their conversation was, you know, they didn't understand. You know, they felt that they were very safe and talking to uh, each other about this ugly woman. And it's the same thing for us, because he was saying when we come to 1 Corinthians, Samuel, sorry, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read the story and we think, oh, it's all about Israel choosing a king. But actually when we read the story and we reflect on it, it actually exposes us, isn't it? Because we can be like God's people. We choose not to trust God, but we trust the things of this world and man. Instead of trusting God's ways, we trust man's ways and man's thinking because it seems so much logical and more sensible. And we are drawn as well to the success of this world. And instead of choosing to be successful before God and doing what's right for Him, we want to be successful ourselves. Now we began in the, in the introduction by saying, you know, how do we choose a leader? And what is a good leader? Well, as we look at the Bible, as we come all the way to the New Testament, the only leader we need to follow is Jesus, isn't it? Uh, because Jesus, uh, as we see up here in this passage, right? In Mark 10, and Revelation chapter 19, right? 
Because Jesus in Mark 10, He doesn't come to take and take and take like uh, the king or the kings of Israel. Right? He came to serve and He came to give His life for us. And more than that, in Revelation chapter 19, He is the King of kings, right? So on the very last day, when all of heaven is open and, ju- and, and, and Jesus comes with justice, right? He will judge people with, with a sharp sword which comes out of His mouth and He is the King of all kings. So you, need, you don't need to follow any other leader, you don't need to follow any other king, right? you need to follow Jesus. He is the one who serves you by giving His life to bring forgiveness for you, and at the same time, He is the one who brings judgment on everyone. When it comes to the really important things in life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, deliverance, you don't need to follow man, right? As we see, there are lots of people following all sorts of people out there in the world, but they're not always going to bring you to the right place. You only need to follow Jesus. So, reflect on your life today. What do you trust? Do you trust God? Or do you trust something else? Do you trust God's ways? Or do you trust man's ways? Do you want to be successful in the world's eyes? Or do you want to be successful in God's eyes? Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us learn from what happened to God's people in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Help us to see that even after this wonderful victory that God had given Israel and how He had always helped them, but yet they were tempted. They were tempted to reject You and to follow and trust a king, a political structure, a professional army, a nation. Dear Father, help us to see that they too were tempted to follow man's ways, the whole concept of having a king like the nations around them. That they wanted to put their trust not in your ways, but in the ways that seemed to bring success in the nations around them. That to them, success in a worldly way was more important than faithfulness to you. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves that we would learn from history, we would learn from the mistakes of your people, that we will not trust in the things of this world, but trust only in you. That we will not trust in the ways of this world that seem so logical and sensible, but rather trust only in your ways, even though it may be very burdensome and cause us hardship and difficulty. And help us to see that success in this world is nothing, but what is important is faithfulness to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.